The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. So uh, did any of you see uh, the commercials for the Super Bowl halftime show this fall and this winter? Anybody see those? Um, you had Rihanna walking toward you in slow motion. And uh, in prominent display around her neck was a gigantic cross, a gigantic cross. Now, we see things like this every day to the point where we probably don't even notice. But do you realize, even from the perspective of history, how weird that is, how strange that is? There's a man named uh, Tom Holland. He's an historian who wrote a fascinating book. It's called Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind. Why do, why do we value what we value? He's, he's looking at that from a historical perspective. And he begins the book by actually describing the Roman mindset towards crucifixion in the first century. This is what, some of what Holland wrote. Holland wrote, no death was more excruciating, more contemptible than crucifixion. To be hung naked, long in agony, swelling with ugly wheels on shoulders and chest, helpless to beat away the clamorous birds. Such a fate, Roman intellectuals agreed, was the worst imaginable. And this, in turn, was what rendered it so suitable a punishment for slaves. Holland continues, it was this disgust that crucifixion uniquely inspired, which explained why... When slaves were condemned to death, they were executed in the meanest, wretchedest stretch of land beyond the city walls. It'd be land full of crosses. So what we see here is there was just this terrible stigma around crucifixion. It was seen as vile and repulsive, and so it was reserved for the kind of people that culture considered to be vile and repulsive. It's really the symbol of revulsion, of insult. I mean... The cross doesn't just kill you, it mocks you. And it says to the world, we think you are worse than nothing. And so Holland, the historian, he says, it wasn't until 400 AD that you began to see works of art about the cross. Think about that. 400 AD until you see works of art about the cross. So imagine a first century Roman's shock if he could somehow visit us today. And he would probably say, you are a strange people to have the worst torture, torture, insult, and execution device of human history adorning the necks of your celebrities, the ears of your athletes, even one stage of our church. So here's, here's one question we should ask. What happened to bring a culture change like that? How do, you, how do you go from saying, we don't even want to look at the cross, we don't think about it, we don't talk about it, we don't see it, it doesn't belong in civilized society, to where everywhere you look, on nearly everyone you see, there are crosses. Something happened. What brings a, a culture change like that? Well, for the next three services, this morning, Friday evening, Easter Sunday, we're looking at Jesus' account or sorry, John's account of Jesus' journey to a Roman cross. And we'll see what happened after the cross too. 
And in our text this morning, the first part of this journey we're taking together, we're looking at Thursday evening. So what happened 2,000-something years this Thursday? We're looking at what happened that Thursday evening. And imagine if, if some of these things happen to you. We see Jesus endure some of the worst things that can ever happen to anyone. So someone close to you maliciously betrays you into mortal danger. This ugly betrayal. We see uh, one of Jesus' best friends publicly denying that he knows him just to save his own skin. We see, I mean, what would this be like, right, if it happened to you? You're slandered, you're despised as if you were an evildoer when all you've ever done is do good to people. And then you're so rejected and hated by the people you've served in hell that you're left alone to face a cross. That's what happens to Jesus. We see in this chapter, he's facing utter humiliation. Utter humiliation. Those things are so just, uh, it would wrench at you. They would trample you. And we, we ask ourselves, how, would, how do you handle, how do we handle humiliation, rejection, and slander when it comes in our lives? And we haven't been tweeted, treated quite like this, but maybe some of us have been treated uh, we're, we're remembering things. How did we handle it when we were so mistreated, so humiliated? Well, this morning, John wants us to see how Jesus handled it. He wants us to watch Jesus handle it. In chapter 1, John wrote this about Jesus. John 1, 4. In Jesus was what? Life. And the life was the light of men. So you have God's life here in Christ, and that life is like light. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So we know what John means by darkness. It's this evil. It's this wretchedness, this horridness. But there's something on the stage of that dark humiliation we're supposed to see. And what are we supposed to see? Light. Because in his person, Jesus is light. He's, he's beauty, he's majesty, he's truth. And where does he shine even the most brightly? He shines most brightly right there on that dark stage of humiliation. So I know uh, we're taking on a large section, right? The whole chapter. Uh, I won't try to cover every detail. If you want to talk about some of the details, I'd love to chat with you after the service. But there are three main sections, or if you want to see, stages. Stage as if, like, you're watching someone on the stage. There are three main dark stages where we see Jesus, and we need to see there pictures of his glory on each stage. So we're going to see Jesus' glory in his betrayal and arrest. We're going to see some of his glory in his trial and denial, and some of his glory in his rejection. So here we go. First is betrayal and arrest. You want to follow along in your Bibles? Again, we're on page 904, John 18. Verses 1 to 3, we see Jesus and his disciples going to a private garden they know well. They would often visit here to enjoy the setting, I guess, to rest. But tonight it's different. Jesus is treated as a serious criminal threat. So we know there's a full moon we know there's olive trees, kind of an ominous setting. But then if you're there, all of a sudden you hear the sound, thousands of feet. 
marching in, you look through the trees in the darkness, and you see flames and torches glowing. It'd be quite terrifying. And in this crowd of men that's coming, you have Jewish temple guard. What are they there for? They handle the arrest. You also have, and the language of the text here suggests, several hundred Roman soldiers. These are not kind and gentle people. Now, why are they here? The Jerusalem gets filled with worshipers at the Passover, right? Scads of people come to worship at Passover. And so it also gets filled with Roman soldiers at Passover, because when, when do people tend to want to riot? <laughs> it's at these festivals. So they are there to keep control. And the, the rumor about Jesus, the excuse for arresting him, is that he is a political insurrectionist, right? He's competing with Caesar. And so the soldiers come and, and quite possibly several hundred Roman soldiers, they provide the muscle. They all blame, they're bringing torches and weapons because they're ready for anything, right? If he hides, we have torches. If they fight, we have weapons. We're ready. And then finally, of course, there's Judas himself, close companion of Jesus, now the betrayer. He knows where Jesus will be, and he leads him, leads him right here. How, how would you respond if you were in the garden and the, the mob came for you? The soldiers expect fight or flight, because that's what we do, right? And that's, that's what the disciples do. What does Peter do? He fights. What do the other disciples do? They fly. They run. And here's where we see the first spotlight on Jesus. Or really, he is the spotlight. He's so incredibly different. Did you see 18 verse 1? He went out with his disciples across to the brook Kidron where there's a garden. He and his disciples entered. Verse 2, Judas who betrayed him also knew the place. Jesus often met there. Verse 3, Judas having procured a band of soldiers, some weapons. Here they are. They're all here. And what does Jesus do? Verse 4, Jesus knowing all that would happen to him came forward. This is, there's something really amazing here. First of all, um, just earlier that night, Jesus had dismissed Judas to go and get this betrayal work done. And then Jesus chooses a spot. He knows, Judas knows. Is Jesus trying to run away from this moment in any way, shape, or form? Or is he walking right into it? Moreover, as the mob comes, he approaches them. It's, it's as if he's taking the initiative on his own arrest. And then this is so fascinating, right? He comes forward, he says to them. Again, imagine the mob he's speaking to. Not kind and gentle, not couth, not polite. He's speaking to these hundreds of men armed and ready for a fight. Who do you seek? They answer him, Jesus of Nazareth. And what does Jesus say? I am he, or I am. Two things to notice. Number one, Jesus marches right up and says, let's go. Here I am. Number two, he says, he says, uh, it, it, he says the Greek version of I am. And if you know your Bible, that should stand out to you. 
If you read the whole Gospel of John, Jesus does this several times. What is that? What do those two words together mean to you? I am. Well, that's the name of God that he used to reveal to his people. It, it tells us so much about who God is. He's sufficient. He's eternal. He's the creator. He's judge. He's good. He's right. He is God. He is. And by def definition, everyone else is named, I am not. Not God. There's one God. And, and here, Jesus in the garden, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. And what does he say to the mob that's come to get him? I am. He's initiating his own arrest as the sovereign son of God. And did you see what John recorded here? I don't, he couldn't have said this if it, if it wasn't true. As Jesus approaches them and says, I am, John has the audacity to tell us that several hundred ruffians stepped back and fell to the ground. And the whole thing gets flipped for us. Who's afraid of who? One man, hundreds of soldiers, they're falling down. It's as if they got a split-second flash of who Jesus really is. And we see who he is. He's the son of God. Jesus' arrest already displays him as the sovereign son of God. What do those soldiers expect? Is this a helpless man whimpering behind a tree in the corner? Is this a rioter raging with out-of-control anger? Or is this a man completely under control who has the whole situation in control? This is the Son of God. Well, that would be enough to see, but there's so much more. Verse 7, he asks them again, whom do you seek? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, verse 8, I've told you I am he. So if you seek me, the next thing on Jesus' agenda, if you seek me, let these men go. Did you see the next thing Jesus gets to? Let these men go. And John remembers it. This was to fulfill the word he has spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. See, guys, in context, Jesus is accused of being a political insurrectionist, right? A, a king who would compete with Caesar. And a king is only as, pow as powerful as his his armies, his people, his followers. So if you want to get this political insurrectionist, you also want to get his people. Have you ever been amazed at how none of the disciples are arrested or messed with or hurt during this entire arrest, trial, and crucifixion of Christ? None of them are touched. And John tells you, here's why. Jesus said, don't mess with my disciples. <laughs> And it wasn't a suggestion. And how did the mob respond to Jesus' command to leave his disciples alone? They obeyed. It's incredible. And John said, this, this fulfills Jesus' word, and it shows you Jesus' love. Jesus says, I don't lose my own. I never lose my own. This means most deeply he won't lose them spiritually. And we know that from their lives. Through all their struggle, they will continue in the faith. He will keep them. They are with him now. They're just fine. Amen. 
but even now he won't lose them physically. It is not time for them to die with and for him. Guess what it's time for? It's, him, it's time for him to die for them so that he can keep them for himself. You guys, do you know what you're supposed to see here? Jesus would rather die than lose his people. He'd rather die than lose his people. In fact, he did die so that he wouldn't lose any of his people. And I feel that if you're a Christian, you ought to be hit with the heart with that as you see this text. If you've repented of your sin, you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you need to hear him saying to you, I would rather die than lose you. In fact, Jesus is saying to you, I did die so that I will never lose you. You're supposed to see the incredible love of Jesus for his people. We're seeing glory already, aren't we? In the darkness, the humiliation. This is the son of God. He's sovereign and in control, and he loves his people. Another thing to see from his betrayal and arrest, we see Jesus' devotion to his father. Verse 10, Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. Now, I enjoy this scene a lot because in one sense, I'm impressed with Peter. He's a bulldog, right? Peter's like, me and Jesus versus 800 people. Let, <laughs> let's go, right? Let's go. And, he, and he, he's aiming for the head, I guess, and he missed, okay? Which sounds just like Peter, doesn't it? it aiming for the head and he missed. And, and, Luke, and, and he slices this guy's ear like right down off his face, okay? And I just can't help but, but tell you the story. The gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus pauses everything to heal this man's ear. You, you have to just imagine this. Hundreds of soldiers, Peter, ah, you know, and cuts off an ear. So dude is like hand to his face, Blood is streaming. His ear is in the dirt. Jesus walks up, grabs his ear, looks him in the eye. It's his right ear, left hand. And puts his ear back on his face. And everybody there is just, right? And if you're Malchus, you're like, I need to rethink my life choices. I came here to arrest this man. He just popped my ear bag on. And you know what? He may have converted because when a gospel writer tells you somebody's name, there's a, some, there's a reason they know them. We don't know. But you contrast this with, with Peter. Contrast Jesus with Peter. Peter's now raging. Jesus is loving his, his who? His enemy. It's the most obvious command we Christians know in the Bible and the one we like try to pretend is not in there. He's loving his enemy. And what is Jesus' response to Peter's action? Does he say, thank you, Peter, finally someone who stands up for his faith. Finally someone who will take action and be what they're supposed to be. Is that what Jesus says to Peter? I wanted to say he said, knock it off, but that doesn't work in context. He said, stop, you're in opposition to the will of my father. You are going against what God is doing. 
Verse 11, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. And then the rhetorical question, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? The cup represents Jesus' humiliation and his suffering. For the glory of God and the good of his people. And Jesus says, if that's the cup my Father is pouring, I'm drinking it. Out of the way, Peter, I'm devoted to my father. Remember these words from John 14:31. Remember what Jesus said. He said, "I do as the Father has commanded me." Why? He wants everybody to know something. What do you need to know about Jesus? So that the world may know I love the Father. He loves his Father. And he will obey his Father even to death, because he loves his father, and he knows his father loves him, and they love their people. And so on the stage of Jesus' betrayal and his arrest, already we see glory. We see glory. Here's what you're supposed to see. He's the sovereign son of God. He's not just a victim who couldn't do anything about it, oppressed by the tyrants of Rome. No, no, no. He's the sovereign son of God. Number two, he's full of love for his people, and he is devoted to his father. And by the way, do you see Jesus keeping the two commands with perfection? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Check. Love your neighbor. Check. And it's his righteousness, you guys, that makes you right with God. This is what is given to you by faith so that the father will look at those who trust in Jesus and say, innocent, righteous, right here. Well, that's just the stage number one. It takes us to his trial before the priests. And I really am going to summarize things here. So if you're like, well, you left out some details, it's true, I did. If you want to talk about them, we can. But I want you to notice the back and forth in this next section. Did you notice how we go from Jesus' trial before the high priest somehow, and then Peter's denial? So you go trial, Peter's denial, then you go trial, Peter's denial. You see how they're juxtaposed, they're, they're put together. There's a reason for that. What do you think it is? Well, first of all, verses 12 to 14, you get this shady late night sham trial before Annas and Caiaphas. Uh, Caiaphas was the official high priest. Annas was the, everybody knows who's really the high priest. He'd, he'd been in charge of the high priestly family for years. You don't seem to do anything without Annas's permission. But they're breaking every rule with this. You don't do trials late at night. You don't do trials with without credible witnesses, and we could go on and on. Shady trial. And then verses 15 to 18, you get the first account of Peter's denial. The text tells us an unnamed disciple has connections. He knows temple people. He can get into this courtyard. It's probably John. That's what most commentators seem to think. John doesn't want to talk about himself. He's writing this gospel. Peter gets in with him. But here's the point. What do you see in verse 17? You know, because Peter's tough, right? He's tough. He's going to pull out his dagger, him against 600 guys or whatever. Verse 17, who's talking to him now? The servant girl. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you're not one of this man's disciples, are you? What does he say? Oh. Hmm. There was something about Jesus getting trained and, or chained and taken away by those soldiers that deflated something in Peter. I don't know. He's scared in front of a servant girl. 
Verses 19 to 24, you go back to the trial and it's injustice. The high priest, they start interrogating Jesus. That's really not how you're supposed to do it in, in this Jewish court of law. You're supposed to have witnesses and they're supposed to be credible witnesses and you interview the witnesses about what happened, which is why Jesus said, um, I have spoken publicly. <laughs> You've been li- I've been preaching openly for three years in every synagogue and I've been at the temple the last several days, nothing I've said or done is a secret. I have no dark political conspiracy. I've told you everything. It's all right there. And so then he gets whacked by the priest's servant. You going to talk to the high priest like that? And what does Jesus say? Well, if I've done, done wrong, show me. But if I haven't, why are you, why are you striking me? It's, it's, all, it's already ironic because who's really the judge in this trial? <laughs> all of a sudden, it's all of a sudden the guy in chains is, is interviewing the guy with the power. But Jesus is confronting them for their corruption. Then we're back to Peter, verses 25 to 27. Peter's standing and warming himself. It's cold. He's by the fire. There's a group of people there paying attention to what's going on, warming their hands. Hey, uh, aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? What does, Jesus, what does Peter say in verse 25? No. 26, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. Oops. Um, Did I not see you in the garden with him? What's Peter say? No. And then what do we hear? The rooster crows. The other gospel tells you, tells, the other gospels tell you that Peter runs away weeping bitterly, weeping bitterly. Why does John do it this way? Trial Peter, trial Peter. Well, number one, we're seeing Jesus so obviously is the innocent one suffering injustice. And and in verse 14, John reminds us, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Oh, political leaders being expedient, that's a, that's a terrifying thing, right? What, what kind of evil has been done throughout history for the good of the people? And people say that, and you're almost like, oh, what's coming? Well, here it is. He's, uh, we saw last week how the people saw Jesus through a political lens, and the priests do as well. If Jesus has power, they're thinking the Romans will squish us. Ironically, because they reject Jesus, what do the Romans do in AD 70? Squish them. But here it's expedient. We'll get rid of Jesus and we'll, we can keep our power, keep the peace that we have. So it's a sham trial with an agenda from the beginning. But it's so ironic, isn't it? John shows you how Caiaphas is an accidental prophet. Because isn't it true that one man is dying for the people? And so we see that Jesus is the innocent one, the faithful one. And then we see juxtaposed with his faithfulness, suffering unjustly. There we see, what do we see in Peter? Unfaithfulness. In John 13, Peter told Jesus he would die for him. Jesus told Peter in response that Peter would deny him three times before the rooster crowed. And then in just the span of a few hours, Peter goes from boasting about his religious zeal and his strength 
to napping in the garden instead of praying, from napping to sword swinging that actually opposes God and what God is doing, to a threefold personal denial of the Lord he promised to follow unto death, just in the blink of an eye, one, one evening. And so Peter gets exposed to himself. And by God's grace, we all get to see it because Peter is a picture of you and me. Self-oriented, prideful, insecure, afraid, up and down, boasting about goodness, relying on our own strength, and in the end, many times, exposed. Not who we thought we were. Not who we said we were. And he's a picture of us. And he has the beauty of juxtaposing the trial with Peter's denial is Jesus is suffering faithfully for the unfaithful. Jesus is going through this faithfully, as unjust as it is, for his unfaithful Peter. And you see beauty there. Jesus is faithful to the end. Can you see his glory on the stage of humiliation, his trial and deny, his, his betrayal and arrest, then his trial and denial, and now finally the rejection? They moved Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters, verse 28. It was early morning. I learned this week, somehow I didn't know this. Evidently, Roman officials started working really early, like 3 and 4 a.m. It was normal. There you go, historical trivia. So they, they're going early to Pilate's headquarters. He's working. Verse 28, they did not enter into the governor's headquarters so that they will not be defiled but could eat the Passover. I mean, here's where you just, right? It, this is where you just, we have emojis for this, right? You slap your face. You're like, what? I mean, not be defiled. Okay, so a religious Jew doesn't want to go into a, a Gentile's home because that would make him unclean and unfit for worship. So he can't celebrate the Passover, and the Passover is coming right now. But we also see the insanity of self-righteous religion, don't we? So they want to stay ritually clean so they can participate in Passover. You remember Passover? It's the highlight of Jewish worship. You remember God's deliverance of the people from slavery in Egypt, and the, the, the crux of that, right? The lamb was killed for the family so that the people could escape God's wrath, and so they're carefully keeping these religious rules and traditions while simultaneously facilitating an unjust execution. We're good people. We're religious. We love the Bible. Let's kill him. Like, right there together. Oh, our hypocrisy. But again, John's deep irony. John is always doing this. Think about this. They are careful. So in their evil as they want to keep, these, keep the Passover while doing evil, ironically, the evil they are doing will actually fulfill the Passover feast they want to celebrate. Because who is the Passover lamb? What did John say? John 1.29. Behold, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
Anyway, Pilate, verse 29, he facilitates them. He goes outside. What accusation do you bring against this man? Again, verse 30, what's their answer? So just to be clear, what's Pilate asking? What accusation do you bring against this man? What has he done wrong? So they ought to give him. Instead, they say, if this man were not doing evil, we wouldn't have brought him. You didn't answer my question. So Pilate smells a conspiracy, verse 31. He says, take him yourself, judge him by your own law. The Jew said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. See, Israel's under Roman rule. they're, They're limited in what they can do. But John sees something more than just the way politics worked at the time. Look at verse 32. Look at what John says. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Wow. So the Jewish religious leadership says, we need you to kill him for us. But do you see what this means? What kind of death is coming? Crucifixion. And in their time, right, first century Palestine, they want Jesus shamed in the most reviling, despicable way. In their minds, if he's hung on a cross, the movement ends. He's, no, he's shown to be nothing and nobody. He's shown to be cursed by God. The movement will be over if you put Jesus on a cross. There's nothing worse than the cross. There's no way God can be for anybody on a cross. And yet, look at what John is telling you. The chief priests are, sche- are scheming, and it's working. And Pilate holds the power, and who's in control? Jesus said he would die on a cross in chapter 12. It's his word, ultimately, that's being fulfilled. It's not there. It's not theirs. Who's the king? Jesus is king. Jesus is king. And so here you begin to see the true king, who is the king of truth. Verse 33, Pilate enters his headquarters and calls Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? What's Jesus' answer? Verse 34. Do you say this of your own accord, or does others say this to you about me? I don't think Pilate is used to this. If if you're on trial with the possibility that you're going to be crucified, I mean, you beg, you plead, you whimper, whatever you do to get out of it, or or if or your rage takes over, you curse, you you revile, and Jesus says, uh, "So what do you think about who I am, Pilate?" Pilate is not used to this. Verse 35, am I a Jew? Your own nation, your chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? So am I a Jew? I don't don't do Jewish stuff. I don't care about your Jewish religion. I'm separate. I don't have to deal with who you are, right? But look what Jesus says in 36. I mean, in a way, no, he's not the king Pilate is thinking of, a political Messiah. But in another way, it's far worse than that. Verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. I don't need human armies, Jesus is saying. I got, whole, I got loads of angels if I want to push that button. I could do way better than Peter and his dagger. 
I'm the director of history, he's saying. I'm sovereign over every nation. My kingdom's not from this world. The nations have always been in Jesus' hand. In time, he will return to judge them, but first he's going to die to save them. He's the king, the king over everything. He's the true king. He's also the king of truth, verse 37. Pilate says to him, so you are a king. Jesus says, Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king, but look, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. You see his humanity, his divinity, he has come, he was born, amazing. I have come to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. He's, Jesus came to reveal the Father, the true and living God. Jesus came so we could see and know and fellowship and be reconciled to the God who made us. Jesus is the truth, John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Pilate did not reckon on this for his first appointment this morning. I'm not just a little Jewish political person you can push aside. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the divine king of everything. And I've, and I've come to reveal truth, Pilate. And Jesus is saying to Pilate, what are you going to do with me and my truth? And I, I think Pilate is freaked out. He has no idea what to do with this. He does not like the implications. Now, what would it mean for Pilate to repent and trust Jesus? He might be hanging next to him. So it's too much. So Pilate does what a lot of people do. When you can't handle the implications of truth, you hide behind a smokescreen of some relativism. Did you see what Pilate asked, verse 38? What is truth? And the idea is, ah, your truth, my truth. Everybody believes what they want. And on the inside, Pilate's like, whew, I got out of that one. Except it doesn't work. Truth is still true. You still have to deal with who Jesus is. Well, here we go. Jesus, the true king, and the king of truth is rejected. We see this in verse 38 and following. After he had said this, Pilate went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. So he's, he's not guilty of what you want. There's no crime here. Verse 39, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? So, so Pilate's actually being ingenious here. He already has a real terrorist insurrectionist in the prison, Barabbas. And Pilate, he's feeling haunted about Jesus, wants to let him go. But if he, do, if he does a prisoner exchange, the chief priests don't get shamed too badly because Jesus is still considered a prisoner. He's still considered a criminal. He's been um, defrocked. He's been defamed. He got exchanged for a prisoner. But he didn't reckon their response that they gave because he says, you want Barabbas or Jesus? And he's thinking, well, that's an easy trade. They don't want Barabbas. He's terrible. And yet, what does the crowd yell at him? Barabbas or Jesus? What do they yell? Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. Guys, Barabbas is literally, he's near a terrorist. He's killed people. And they said, give us Barabbas. And you see, Jesus is rejected. Who's he rejected by? He's rejected by everyone. Religious Jews, powerful Romans, political left, political right, spiritual pagans, monotheistic scripture readers, they all unite in saying, Give us Barabbas. 
deep irony again. Barabbas is actually a violent political insurrectionist, but you know what his name means? Son of the Father. And so Jesus' exchange for Barabbas, they claim Jesus is a, a political danger, but he's not. He's innocent. And Barabbas literally is. And yet as they trade them out, the true son of the father takes the place of the guilty criminal. It's awe-inspiring. We see two things here in this illustration. Number one, it reveals the sinful heart. We would rather have murderers than God himself. I don't like the reality of holy God who's king over everything, saying, what are you going to do with me? Are you going to surrender to me? Resist that. What is truth? Let me out of here. Give me Barabbas. It reveals the human heart. But we also see a parable of the gospel because in his rejection, Jesus is the true king and the king of truth who takes the place of the guilty so that the guilty sinner can be set free. And here I am again. In this story, I'm Peter. In this story, I'm Barabbas. And Jesus took my place to set me free. If you trust him, he did that for you as well. Look at 1 John 3, 1. This is what our freedom looks like. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. So we've seen three stages of the darkest humility. Jesus' betrayal and arrest, his trial and denial, his rejection. But on each stage of darkness, we have seen his glory, his beauty. So back to that first question I asked in the beginning, what what are we doing with crosses everywhere? We don't decorate ourselves with nooses or electric chairs. What's going on with crosses everywhere? Perhaps there's a fundamental reason our cultural memory knows that on the ugliest thing ever, the most beautiful thing occurred. The most glorious person ever hung on a cross for us. And I don't want to ruin the tension of the story, but I will tell you that Jesus rises from the dead. And the reason that's important is because it vindicates everything he did on the cross. He is still king of kings, lord of lords, and he's reigning at the right hand of his father right now. His kingdom is not of this world, but he is inviting you and me into his kingdom to participate in his kingdom. So you need to see who he is so you can repent and believe. What are we supposed to see? He's the sovereign son of God who loves his people and is devoted to the father. Did you see it? He's the faithful one who took the fall for his unfaithful people. And he's the true king and the king of truth who is rejected so that guilty sinners like me and like you could be set free to be children of God. And so, yeah, we, we are doing something that the ancient world could not comprehend. We are celebrating the cross. And we're going to continue celebrating by taking the Lord's Supper together. What a weird meal that would be. What does the bread symbolize? Body torn on a cross. What does the juice symbolize? Blood shed on a cross. 
And we're like, let's eat it and praise the Lord. What are you doing? It's because he's the son of God who died for me. In his death, I have life. I'm forgiven. I'm reconciled to God. I'm a child of God. He's the son of God who bled for me. It's his love for me, the undeserving sinner. He, he bled for me so that I could know him, so that I could belong to him forever because he won't lose any of his people. That's what we're celebrating as we take the Lord's Supper. So let's celebrate this ironic, glorious beauty, Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for sending Christ and Jesus as we look to you. Oh, there's nobody like you. There's just nobody like you. Standing up to the mob to protect your people and yet walking right in to betrayal, into arrest. To, to see you standing for truth in that trial, but enduring injustice so that you could save faithless Peter, to see you, the, the true king, the king of truth, rejected for Barabbas, the criminal, but yet showing us you're the true son of the father who traded places with sinners to set them free. So Lord, we rejoice in you and what you've done for us. We believe that you are who you say you are, that you lived, died, and you rose for us, and that in you, we have been set free from our sin and our rebellion to be loved and forgiven children of God. So teach that to us, Lord. If we're already Christians, make it go deeper. Make our love for you stronger. Make our obedience to you more passionate. And Lord, if we're in here today, walking in this door as not a Christian, we pray that the Holy Spirit would show us Jesus and we'd walk out of these doors different, belonging to you through faith in Christ. Bless us now as we continue our worship and take the supper you've given us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening, and we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.